There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, Greg. Yes. You're there. We've had a lot of, sorry, we've had a lot of great discussions these past weeks on our show, on the show, but also with clients on a daily basis. And Greg, the thing on everybody's minds these days is the market or the markets, depending exactly. on who we talk to, right? Sure. There's lots of headlines out there about how the current market is a stock picker's market. And I know we've discussed this a little bit over the last few weeks. As you know, that expression, stock picker's market, really, as I mentioned before, it frosts my buns. Frost your buns. What's the craw one? Sticks in my craw. Sticks in your craw. All those kinds of good things. But this notion of a stock picker's market and that you have to be nimble and this idea that the internal correlation amongst the S&P 500 stocks or kind of the US market is low and that this low correlation creates this opportunity for astute investors to choose stocks with a chance to materially outperform the index. So today we're going to talk a little bit about stock picking and we're going to give our opinions on this idea of stock pickers market. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but let's just say we don't believe it. Well, not the end. (laughs) The end. (laughs) See you next week. Yeah. Till next time. Why don't we start by just talking about stock picking? So this concept of stock picking, well, to a lot of people, that's just, oh, I really like this stock or using Disney as an example. Many people have bought Disney shares because they spend a lot of money on Disney paraphernalia or taking their kids to Disneyland. So they buy Disney shares because they think somehow they're paying themselves in a way. But stock picking, at least historically, was done with great purpose. And the purpose being to identify companies that have the possibility of going up in value, ideally, by more than the market as a whole. And I think when stock picking started, actually, it wasn't even a matter of comparing the stocks you pick to the market as a whole or a benchmark of any kind. It was really just to find good investments and ideally safe investments for the long term. But I mean, stock picking, as you mentioned, you said when it first started, well, that'd be like when the markets first came to exist. Exactly. So that could be like going back to tulip mania almost. It could. For our purposes, we'll go back to the early 1900s. But absolutely. There's a number of different approaches to stock picking that we've talked about in the past. There's technical analysis. There's other ways of trying to find good stocks. But we're going to focus on primarily fundamental analysis, which was really where the whole thing started. And the objective of fundamental analysis is to, first of all, determine a company's intrinsic value, compare it to the current trading price of that company's stock. And if the intrinsic value is higher than the trading price, then the company, you'd think it was mispriced and undervalued and therefore should be bought. And if you do the analysis and you find that the intrinsic value of a company is lower than the trading price of their shares, then theoretically, you would sell those shares because the company wasn't worth what they were trading at. Yeah, so it's undervalued or overvalued. Exactly. Yeah. So as we've talked about previously, I mean, Benjamin Graham 
was known as the father of value investing, and he literally wrote the book on fundamental analysis back in 1934 with the shocking title, Security Analysis. That's quite a title. <laughs> it, it is. It just jumps off the shelf at you. <laughs> it's like and now on the New York Times bestsellers list, Security <laughs> Analysis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, he wrote a follow-up book in 1948 called The Intelligent Investor, and that one is a little catchier. And of course, many former students of Benjamin Graham's, I believe he taught at Columbia University, went on to illustrious careers in the investment world. And some of the names of people that you would recognize would be Sir John Templeton of Templeton Funds and Warren Buffett. I think I've heard of both of those people. Yes. So listen, Graham's first book now has been around for about 90 years and tens of thousands or more of well-trained analysts and computer programmers have utilized the techniques of fundamental analysis to research essentially every stock traded on any of the world's exchanges. Now, part of the success of the early fundamental analysis historically was based on the fact that not many people were doing it. And therefore, Graham and his disciples essentially had information that was just not broadly available to other investors. It's a little different today. It is different. So not only is everyone using the same techniques of fundamental analysis to look at share prices, but more and more people have access to that information through the World Wide Web. Or what's known as the Google box to is, some people. Yes, exactly. And so what's happened is that the possibility now of having any real advantage from doing that kind of analysis has really been eliminated or arbitraged away. It's very difficult to do analysis that nobody else has done and identified stocks using some sort of proprietary technique to benefit yourself has really been wound down or if not eliminated completely. And so how do we know this? Well, back in 1963, Benjamin Graham made a speech in where he said, and this is a quote from him, similarly, take the case where an individual stock is favored by one of my own fraternity of security analysts because he is optimistic about its future earnings and general prospects. To the extent that investors generally agree this company has good future prospects to that extent, its prospects are also likely to be fully reflected and perhaps over-reflected in the market price. So put simply, if everybody thinks that it's a great company and everybody is therefore buying it, then that is already going to be reflected in the price and new analysis is not going to help advance that at all. In fact, it sounds a lot like the efficient market hypothesis, which we've talked about on many occasions, which was first published by Eugene Fama as a doctoral dissertation in 1965, where he says that basically that security prices reflect all the information that's broadly known about them and therefore are relatively efficient. So if you're going to be a stock picker in any market, whether it's a bull market, a bear market, or something in between, you must not believe in the efficient market hypothesis, or you must believe that you're just superior to it. That's right. And again, listen, many people make their livings by essentially assuming that the efficient market hypothesis is wrong. One more little tidbit that came out of Benjamin Graham's speech in 1963, again, the father of value investing and the father of fundamental analysis, he also identified the fact that it's impossible for investors as a whole, and therefore the average investor to do better than the general market. Now, that to me sounds a lot like the whole point that investing is a zero-sum game. The average of all investors' portfolios and portfolio returns is the market return. Some will do better, some will do worse, but on average, the return is the market, less fees. 
So I just wanted to highlight, and we do this from time to time, and it's not to make fun of people or prove how smart we are or anything else. Well, I think on the contrary, we fully embrace the fact that we're not smarter than the market. Exactly. You're right. It's not to make fun of people that believe that they are. It's just to point out the futility of it. That's right. And also, we want to focus on, as we've talked about, building investment portfolios that investors can live with in order to achieve their long-term goals. And so for any investment strategy to be successful, it has to be a strategy that the investor himself can live with, or herself, by the way. Good catch. Thanks. So I went back to an article that came out on January the 7th. It was updated. I think it originally came out in mid-December. And the title is 15 Best Stocks to Buy for Beginners Right Now. Okay, wait, wait. So for beginners. So these are like people that are just new to investing, right? And this particular publication is geared towards millennials. Okay. Are you picking on millennials? I am not picking on millennials. I'm identifying, though, that some of them may be in their early stages of investing and getting comfortable or investing for the first time. And therefore, if you're a millennial and you're starting your investing career, so to speak, then you would want to have a good positive investment experience. And sorry, before you get on with that list, that same millennial hasn't been invested during a bear market really until now. Exactly. Because I'm not sure. I think the oldest millennial is what, mid-30s or something right now? I don't know. Something something in that. that range. And so certainly the last major bear market, the global financial crisis, which ended 13 years ago, those millennials might not have had any money to invest in their early 20s. I'm just going to pick on the 15 best stocks to buy for beginners right now. And not to identify the publishers of this article, let's call them Acme Investing and Advice. But I guess if somebody Googled 15 best stocks for beginner investors to invest in and looked at an article dated somewhere around January, they might be able to figure it out. They might be able to. (laughs) But for now, it's Acme Investments. Okay. (laughs) In fact, it's Acme Advice because I don't think they actually deal directly with clients. They just give advice. Okay. Here's the 15 best stocks for investors for beginners in 2022. Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Costco, Disney, Facebook, MasterCard, Microsoft, Netflix, Nike, Pinterest, Shopify, Spotify, Teladoc, and Tesla. That was a very quick list. That's a good list of 15 stocks. And as it turns out, probably, unfortunately, there's a number of tech names on that list. But as well, there's some more diversified. There's Disney, there's MasterCard, there's Nike. So now here's where things stand right now. And Wait, though, so the ones you just identified, Disney, MasterCard, Nike, those would all be consumer discretionary stocks. That's right. So consumer discretionary stocks tend to not do very well during a bear market. True. MasterCard is a financial stock. That's I okay. Guess. And listen, easy to pick on these. There's lots of stocks that are down this year. In fact, I think most of the stocks on the S&P 500 are down. And the year is early. It's only been six months. So again, we're not saying that this list of stocks won't do well at some point in the future. However, right now, after six months, the average return on those 15 stocks is negative 40%. And what'd the market do? The market is down 20%. So I think that this list did a little worse. This list, well, (laughs) if you consider twice as bad, a little worse, then yes. And listen, MasterCard is only down 11%. However, every other stock on that list is down more than the market, with the worst performer being a Canadian company, Shopify. 
And it's down how down much? 76%. At that time of that printing, I believe it's down more than that now today. No, right? that's as of today. Oh, okay. Yep, as of today, it's down 76%. So here's the point. The point is not that these people were stupid for recommending those stocks. The point is that it's virtually impossible to recommend stocks. Six months is a very short investment time horizon. And so we're not even saying that this is where things are going to end the year. However, what I am saying is that if you're trying to create a positive investment experience for somebody, particularly a beginner, then experiencing a downturn twice as bad as the current downturn we're going through is not a great way to start your investing experience. And you may not stick around long enough to enjoy the benefits of those stocks or just the market as a whole recovering somewhere down the road, which it will. So it's not that these are bad stocks. Stocks are not bad or good. They're just stocks. Yeah. And they're, they're as good as the companies that issue them. And the quality of those companies is determined over years and decades, not six months. But what we're focusing on is how to have a positive investment experience. And the way to have a positive investment experience is to have as low volatility and as small negative or downturns or drawdowns as possible. Well, let's look at the top performance stocks for 2022 year to date. I'm just going to name off five, the top five. Go for okay. it. Embecta Corporation, Occidental Petroleum, Constellation Energy, Valero Energy, and ExxonMobil. What do most of those companies have in common, Greg? Well, I would say most of those companies are oil and gas companies or energy companies. Yeah. Four of them are energy companies with the only exception being the number one performing stock this year, year to date, being Embecta Corporation. And how much is that stock up, Colin? I think it's up, well, I don't even know what number that is. It's like 24 million percent or something. <laughs> I mean, because it was, listen, I don't even know what Embecta Corporation is. I had to look them up. I guess they do medical devices geared around diabetes, something to do with that. Okay. Anyways, it IPO'd this year. So that kind of makes sense that it was an IPO and not something that was trading before that just went up 24 million percent. And typical that no one has ever heard of that company other than the few investors that are obviously really delighted that they bought shares. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that of the top five, four of them being energy names, because only a year ago or two years ago, well, it was two years ago that energy, when I say energy, the price of oil, Greg, remember it had a negative price on one day. I do remember. Negative $35 a barrel of West Texas crude. Somebody would pay you $35 to take their oil on that, that day. That was the one month future, I think, here, the futures price. So back then, nobody wanted to own oil and gas stocks. So I bet you if you looked up a list in that time frame and it said top 15 stocks for beginner investors to own, there'd be no energy names on that list, right? That's right. It would have been probably very similar to the list that you're holding. Exactly. Right? So look, are we picking on this? I guess we are. I want to give another example really quickly. And I've done this one before. So my son, Kalen, his name is Kalen. You know him. I know Kalen. K-Dog, we like to call him. K-Dog. Yeah. K-Dog is 18 years old and just trying to figure out life right now. But when he was eight, eight years old, so rough math, 10 years ago. Approximately. <laughs> he came in the office. He was sitting at my desk and I was trying to find something fun for him to do for the day. And I gave him a list of the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the TSX 60. And I said, hey, here's a highlighter. I want you to pick 10 names from each of those lists. You remember that day, right? I do. So he picked some names that were familiar to him, like 
Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Nike, Disney, Walmart. But he also had some surprises in his list like Agrium, which is now Nutrien, Agnico Eagle Mines, and Enerplus. He likes a diversified portfolio, clearly. Clearly, at a young age, he understood the benefits of diversification. Yes. But what we did then is we compared his list of 20 stocks to a list that our analysts put out called the Core Portfolio. And I've just benchmarked how he's done since then. Now, keep in mind, the analyst list, these are people that have things like CFAs, MBAs, they have lots of experience, PNG designations, I mean, tons of experience, and they're paid a lot of money for that work. At the time, Kalen was also being paid, Greg. Do you know how much he was getting paid? No, I don't, Colin. Well, $30 a month in allowance. Okay. So Pretty good allowance. Jeez. Well, I mean, he was eight, so it's not that great. But anyways, so long story short, when I look at the performance, and this is up to today, if you look at the three-month performance, Kalen's index, which we used to call the Scotia Capital Kalen Index, is down negative 9%, 9.02%. Over the last one year, he's up 8.38%. Nice. Over three years, 15.38. Five years, 15.89. 10 years, 17.34. And 15 years, 13.74. So those are pretty good numbers, right? Not bad. I won't go through all the numbers of the other portfolio, but let's just say that he's outperformed the analyst list over the last 10 years by 5.54% per year for the last 10 years. Nice. Is the alpha over the benchmark. I think I got the number right. I might've screwed that up a little bit. But anyways, the point being is that here's a kid that had no experience, didn't even know what a stock market was, just picked 10 names from each list and he's outperforming the benchmark. Maybe that explains why he's the youngest 18-year-old hedge fund manager out there right now. <laughs> yeah, I have to get him. Yeah, maybe that's a good angle. Okay, now if we compare the measurements of volatility, you mentioned that what can investors do, be it young or older investors, beginner or experienced, is to focus on things like volatility. So if we look at the standard deviation in the Scotia Capital Keelan Index over the last five years, his standard deviation was 13%. The standard deviation of the analyst portfolio was 19%. So he's getting a better return with one-third less volatility. That's pretty significant. Absolutely. So I'm only using this as an example because... This is not a stock picker's market, Greg. I don't care who you are. Just like every market is not a stock picker's market. I want to be pretty clear on that. Like that's a point that we need to sort of bang the drums on because we've heard it for years. So-and-so is so good at picking stocks and whatever. It's like, no, they're not. No. And let me ask you a question. Having now lived with the Kalen Index for 10 years, would you attribute Kalen's success to luck or skill? Well, that's a pretty straightforward question. It's all skill. It comes from his gene pool. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course it's all luck. I mean, why would he pick things like he picked? Like, I mean, he picked Home Depot. I mean, he picked Home Depot because he recognized it. Sure. He picked Nike and Disney just for those reasons you mentioned earlier on that other list because he recognized it. And so our point here is not that there aren't some very highly educated and skillful people out there. And as we know, if you eliminate fees, which of course you can't eliminate fees, but if you were to eliminate them from the analysis, you would expect half of the active managers or stock pickers out there to outperform their benchmark and half to underperform their benchmark by chance alone, by luck, without any skill. Now, there could well be skill in some of those people that are outperforming their benchmarks. The problem is, how do you differentiate them from the people that are just lucky? And that's the problem. 
There could be skillful stock pickers out there, but you would take years and years to prove to yourself that they were skillful and not lucky and impossible to prove in advance. So that's the problem. It's like playing blackjack. There's certain rules that if you follow playing blackjack, and it's just a game of statistics, if you follow the rules to a T, you give yourself a chance of having a better reward, a better outcome. Exactly. But as you say, that doesn't mean that some beginner can't sit down, put $100 on the table and hit when they're not supposed to hit or hold when they're not supposed to hold and be rewarded for it. Exactly. And so was that skill or luck? And it's luck. That's all it is. So That's right. Okay, Greg, let's talk about charting really quickly because there are technical analysts out there that use charting as a form of differentiation and how they can sort of differentiate between stocks. Chartists or technical analysts, they do look at charts and they include things like moving averages, relative strength, candlestick patterns, chart formations, things like that, that are highly technical. And interestingly, there are many people that not only believe that they are predictive, but maybe even tie them together with some of the behavioral finance theories that try to get at markets are efficient if you believe that people are rational. Yeah, markets are inefficient if people don't behave rationally all the time, which is the whole concept of behavioral finance or behavioral economics. And behavioral types of impacts on the markets could tie into charting and technical analysis, because technical analysis very often can look at the movement of investors into or out of a particular stock or a particular market. So there may be some predictive abilities there, but again, very difficult to prove well in advance. And therefore, we tend to fall back on what I would call the easy, sensible thing, and that is looking at using diversification to reduce risk. Well, I find it interesting because, as you know, I've recently finished a course with the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. It was through the Investments and Wealth Institute with a designation that you hold. Yes, a highly prestigious designation, the Certified Investment Management Analyst. There you go. And in it, I found it really interesting. In the studies, there was a section on technical analysis, and they downplay it during the coursework, and they talk about how everybody kind of knows that this doesn't work, but we got to kind of teach it to you anyways. And I was like, well, why? (laughs) If you know, if everybody in this forum believes that it doesn't work, why are we being forced to learn what a candlestick pattern is or exactly. whatever. It doesn't make sense. And I'm guessing that there's a whole raft of technical analysts out there that are going to take exception to that point of view. I don't really care. I got this <laughs> for you. If you're a technical analyst and you believe that you have access to some worldly power that nobody else does, you're just wrong. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> well, there we go. Why don't we just finish off by talking a little bit about, like, there are risks in trying to pick stocks. And we're not just talking about the risk of picking on somebody because they picked 15 stocks that didn't do so well. Because they could have picked 15 that did really great. That's right. So that risk is just kind of the luck of the draw. But the real risk is over-concentration. If you're talking about having an investment, an area of investment that includes maybe 10 or 12,000 stocks worldwide, and you're picking 15, then you're really over-concentrating your portfolio and making bets that may have a big impact on the portfolio. And we've talked about that in the past, when you buy an individual stock, there's really two extreme outcomes, potential outcomes. One, you could get rich beyond your wildest dreams, or you could lose everything. That's true for any individual stock that a person could buy. And so if you only have 15 names in the portfolio, each one represents 6% of the overall portfolio, and one of them goes to zero, 
then immediately you're going to underperform the market. Even if the rest of the stocks do well in line with the market, you're going to underperform by 6% because you've got a zero in there. So you want to have enough stocks in the portfolio that if you get any zeros, it'll have virtually no significant impact on the performance of the portfolio as a whole. Wait, 15? Well, I'm saying there's 15 names, so each yeah. stock represents about 6% of the portfolio. That's only 90%, though. Uh, well, yeah, okay, so six. Six, <laughs> six and one fifteenth. Are you picking on my math skills again? <laughs> well, you picked on mine a few episodes ago, so I had to call that out. But anyway, that's the point, though, is that Obviously, the impact of one stock on the portfolio can be huge, whereas the impact of one stock on a portfolio of 5,000 stocks will be very insignificant. Another thing we talked about in the past, there's a time cost. If you underperform the market this year, well, then just to catch up, you got to outperform the market for one or two or three years into the future just to get back to where you would have been had you been well diversified in the first place. Yeah, like that portfolio that's down 40%, if it drops 40%, it has to go up 80% to get back? It's a number, yeah. Yeah, to even. That's right? right. So again, as we've talked about in the past, that time cost is something that you don't want to have to endure if you're working towards a financial goal as identified in a financial plan. If you know you need to get somewhere, you don't want to be off because of a mistake like that. And so you want to avoid those underperformance of torpedo stocks or things that just don't work out as you hoped by virtue of not having enough of them that they can have that kind of impact on your outcome. So in terms of diversifying, we've talked about this many times and we'll continue to talk about it. Diversify, diversify, diversify by market geographically. So Canada, US, international, by size of company, by relative price of companies, by company profitabilities, etc. The more you can do that, the less risk you have from over-concentration. Yeah, because if you have $1,000 to invest and it goes down 40% in that portfolio you outlined and you're just new to investing, like that hurts, but it doesn't really affect the rest of your life. But if you have $5 million and it goes down 40%, that changes things. It does. And interesting you bring that up because it's sort of what it does to the $1,000 investor, it doesn't necessarily change the rest of his life unless as a result of it, he says, well, I'm never investing again, because I invested once and I lost 40% of my money in six months. And so by not investing in the future, that may have an impact because they may limit themselves to guaranteed GICs or guaranteed products that don't give them the same opportunities that they do by investing in the markets. Exactly. Have we beaten that horse to death yet? Or oh, well, That's going to keep coming up because it's too easy, because there's too many of these lists that float around top 15 picks for this, top 12 dividend paying stocks, top 10 growth companies. I heard something the other day, Greg. It said, do you know what a stock is that's gone down 90%? Do you know what it is? It's a stock that's gone down 70% twice. I thought that was very interesting and a very interesting way of thinking about it. Because yeah, with the way we're investing and investing for ourselves and with our clients is we do not invest in things that have the chance to go to zero because it's way too important. Because those people with $1,000 to invest are not typically the people we're working with, but the people we're working with, we're getting a lot of referrals these days because people understand like this is important stuff. If the market's down 25%, they want to know that they're going to be okay. Well, it's not a game. In the end, it's really not meant to be fun. I know a lot of people see the speculation or the gambling aspect of this as fun, but it's really not meant to be fun. It's meant to be a disciplined process to help people get to their end goals. And unfortunately, 
fun is just not part of the objective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was in business school. We had this lecture and this person talked about how do you make decisions? And I talked about how I make rules-based decisions. And they looked at me like I was crazy. But in our world, it is rules-based. Sure it is. So if you've got a tactical, or not a tactical, but an asset allocation, strategic asset allocation of 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, and you're well-diversified, and it falls outside of the lines because of market movements, you've got a rules-based decision where you need to rebalance that portfolio. Very different than, do you think I should buy GameStop, AMC, or Disney? (laughs) Very different discussion. Exactly. All right, maybe that's enough. It is enough. But there's much more to talk about, and we'll be back next week. Sounds good. Till then. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners. Please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.